Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Hi again, everybody. Uh, thanks for being with us for another week of the Yolitics podcast. Really appreciate you listening. Uh, Jason Wheeler here with you today. Uh, Jason Whiteley was with us as of just a few moments ago, but uh, then he froze up on uh, his Zoom camera there and disappeared from the Internet entirely. I don't know. I don't think we're going to get him back here, but... Uh, We'll soldier on without him today. Got an important topic uh, that we're getting into today here, and it uh, revolves around one of our most listened to episodes to date. It was called My Skin is Not a Weapon, and uh, we put this one out uh, earlier in the summer uh, and got a tremendous response to it. And at the time, uh, it was just it was such a robust discussion, and there was so much that we got into that we promised that we were going to loop back and check back in again uh, as we have this ongoing conversation about society as a whole, really, but also the black community in particular. And we first had this conversation following the uh, killing of George Floyd. uh, And now here we are again. We've got yet another uh, incident that has happened this time in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And uh, we were planning to do this anyway, and uh, today we are doing it. We're following up, and we have reassembled our original panel to talk about this. We've got uh, reporter Demond Fernandez from WFAA with us again, as well as author Akila Rene, politician Carl Richard Jr., and assistant principal David James. First of all, if we could just go across uh, the panel here. Akila, we'll start with you. Um, what are your thoughts right now? I, I, we talked you know, a couple of months ago, and you talked about how it's almost like people become desensitized uh, to these incidents, and we're seeing the video once again. What are your thoughts right now? Uh, unfortunately, it's one of here we go again. This has happened yet again. You know, We all kind of rally together after George Floyd. It's like, we got to do better. We're going to do better. And this just sets us right back. It's, it's, I have a feeling of disappointment and hurt how it happened, the way it went down. It's discouraging at best that Mm -hmm. we will never move forward. And, and black men will continue to be targets in situations like this. It's I'm discouraged at this point. Carl Sherman Jr., uh, what are your thoughts after you you saw what happened there in Wisconsin and, you know, the nights uh, uh, of protests that we have seen uh, since then? What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, and, and that state, Wisconsin, has been pretty um, 
uh, pretty consistent in their protests. Milwaukee having some protests over over 90 days um, since the murder of George Floyd. And so for it to happen in their own backyard, uh, in the way that it happened, um, your heart goes out to them. Um, it, this is a sense of, you know, kind of when you look at the statistics, police kill three people in America each and every day. Um, so this is the one that we're now talking about. Um, but the reality is, if we just look at the data, uh, there were two other people murdered uh, by police the same day. And so it's, it's, a, it's a cry for systemic change um, that needs to happen. And that's where my emotion is right now. It's just based in, you know, what are uh, our elected officials, our policymakers, those that have uh, the ability that are at the table to influence change, what are they doing in the season? Uh, and that's what we, we haven't seen yet. And uh, David James, uh, where are your thoughts as we uh, convene uh, once again? Yeah, so um, I, I guess I left off last time just just talking about how tired I am and, and how action needs to take place. Um, and I think so many people on this panel, uh, outside of this panel, do agree with that. Uh, but I want to contest what Akilah said briefly um, because it, it does feel like there's, there's a rallying cry. But if, if you look at the, the nature and the trajectory of kind of what's taking place on social media, you see a lot of back and forth conversation, a lot of disagreement. Uh, you see a lot of people that uh, are upset even with just uh, the, the demonstrations that pro athletes are making. And so um, as much as we are uniting, I think we are um, in a polarizing way dividing ourselves from from people who are not willing and ready to be anti-racist. And so I think uh, there's still a lot to be done, you know, as far as that's concerned. Well, we, we, we know that there are definitely uh, differing opinions, especially when you get on social media about this. But we also can't forget the fact that there are people who actively uh, are on social media uh, who are trying to further divide Americans on certain issues. And this is one of those hot button issues, especially going into an election, that there are people who are actively on there trying to use these wedge issues to drive people further apart. So uh, let's not go any further without acknowledging that too. Uh, I do want to loop back on the protests that we've seen in the major leagues. Uh, that seems like a, a, a tremendous development here. Uh, but first, Demond Fernandez, I want to bring you in too. Uh, we're, we're, we're doing this once again. It hasn't been three months since we talked last and uh, we were planning to have this conversation anyway, right before what happened in Kenosha. It just happens that it has happened again. Yeah, you know, Jason, I got to tell you, Akilah said it, David picked up on it and called, touched on it too. Here we go again. And you know, as the journalists in this group, it's so challenging, not only reading the headlines, listening to people, but also having to write the stories. Here we go again. It gets so, I, I don't wanna say frustrating because I think that evokes a certain emotion that I don't want to, really put out there, but it does get frustrating. Um, I have to listen to these stories intimately. I have to watch the video to be able to tell the stories. Um, and the video doesn't lie. Of course, we don't know all the circumstances around how some of these incidents happen, but when you see this video continue to happen months after George Floyd, and George Floyd was just one incident that we're talking about, I mean, that forced us to talk about, that had this discussion. But when you see it continuously happening, not only that, 
But you also have to cover the fact that even people in the protests that I'm so happy they have been going because a lot of people have been allowed to voice their frustrations and their concerns. And we've seen some small changes happening in different municipalities, but you have individuals who are still planting themselves in protest groups who are who have an agenda to hurt the protesters and silence their voices. You just saw that happen, uh, you know, this week. So when you think about all that and how on social media and out in the public, there's still some people who are diminishing or trying to diminish the voices and concerns of marginalized groups. It just makes you think, here we go again. And it's so frustrating. You know, it's kind of interesting. I shared with uh, one member of this group about uh, one of my neighbors who asked me to help weigh in. One thing that has happened since our last conversation is that I think the door has been open for people to talk about some of their concerns and also listen to people who are part of groups who have been systematically marginalized um, or hurt groups and ask their perspective so they can get a better understanding. But when the dialogue becomes a debate, it makes you wonder whether or not people are truly opening themselves up to hear other people's perspectives or if they're trying to just use what they think their objectives to try to change your voice. So um, that's been one of the most troubling things that I've had to deal with recently, but honestly, I'm getting so tired of it. You know, not only dealing with the pandemic, but dealing with this pandemic now of these issues continuously happening, it just is draining. And as a person who has to work to tell those stories, I'm constantly looking for something positive to share. Hmm. I think you bring up a good point there too, though, that the discussion turns into a debate uh, after something like this. And and let's talk about the, the politics that happens with this. Um, what are you seeing in the black community right now as far as, I mean, we're you know, a couple of months out from an election right now. Um, what are you seeing right now as far as this issue goes with the election? Is this making people say, that's how I'm going to affect change? We've seen a lot of protests. We have seen people standing up and saying what they believe. Does that translate, though, to from what you're seeing right now to actionable things on the ground leading up to an election? It's interesting, Jason, because the conversations are happening locally, but I think the attention in this election has been more on a national scale. Mm -hmm. And I think that what's happening on the streets is being watered down in the national discussions, in my perspective, because I'm not really hearing a lot about the people who are, who've been consistently marching. Um, what you do hear is um, spin and certain narrative to suggest that the people who are out on the streets are troublemakers, or there's the call for law and order, or that what we see in the big picture sense is um, part of America's problem. And I think that that's problematic because no one's really listening to the voices of the people on there, but looking at the optics of it all and suggesting that we need to make some change because protesting and hitting the streets is, the, is a big major issue, but really not looking at what's behind the people's protests. So I know the discussions are happening. I wish they were happening. And I think that they're happening more on a local level, but when it comes to the national big picture, I think in my opinion, it's still a little watered down. It needs to be a, something that is more aggressive. To everyone here, we have heard that phrase law and order a lot uh, here recently. Does that, how does that one strike you? How does the phrase strike you? 
Yeah, law and order is a dog whistle, um, as far as I'm concerned, as a black man in America. Law and order um, is a call to um, continue to oppress and suppress marginalized communities. Um, and and that's, that's quite frankly what it is. And the danger, unfortunately, as a person of color in America, uh, in this election cycle, Jason, is, uh, you know, the reality that our Democratic nominee pushed the crime bill. Uh, and has a pro- former prosecutor as a running mate. Um, those are realities that you can't overlook. Um, those are things that color their perspective, their um, their American narrative. And so there's a danger in uh, the political conversation now in that uh, we are so fearful of one extreme uh, that we potentially don't see any growth or movement forward. And, and you mentioned it before, and I know you want to, uh, to talk about it and at some level, uh, the NBA players doing what they did on yesterday um, shows that you can use your talents, your gifts, your God-given abilities to make a statement that's loud and profound. Uh, The question now becomes, for Black Americans, for Brown Americans, is uh, do we allow this moment to pass us by? You know, mm-hmm. how do we actually get engaged and involved to implement policy change, um, not only on a national level, but on a local level? Because law and order, once again, does not speak to um, the reality in Black and Brown communities that our educational systems are severely lacking, that our mm-hmm. economic opportunities and viability in our communities that have been deindustrialized, that um, the jobs are simply gone. That does not mitigate the fact um, that we don't have real viable opportunities to change our economic status in America. And the economic status is what leads us to um, the cycle of law and order, so to speak, that keeps us in a perpetual cycle of uh, the criminal justice system. Uh, And so uh, so, yeah, law and order uh, to, in a more concise way is a dog whistle. And uh, and it's something that's concerning uh, for for me uh, and I'm sure for many members in our community. Well, yeah. And I've heard from some people who say, you know, law and order is fine. But, you know, think of the first part of that law. Uh, we should also not have these situations where people who are unarmed are being shot in the back. Uh, and, and, and so where is the law in that? I've heard people make that argument uh, when they hear that law and order phrase. Uh, I want to ask, do you think that these the, these uh, players uh, from baseball, soccer, basketball uh, standing up and saying, no, as a whole team, we're not gonna we're not gonna play uh does that move this forward does that actually do something that tangibly changes this i think it's symbolic and that's appreciated i think on the grand scale but will it actually change anything i don't know you know you still have the nfl who really hasn't taken a stance about that perhaps they'll take some notes from the nba um it's a diversity lesson i think it's a symbolic move but um, what real weight it'll have, I think that's still to question. Am I naive here? Uh, it seemed like after what we saw with George Floyd that something changed. It felt like the, the, the atmosphere uh, shifted. It felt like there was going to be a lot of real change that came out of that. And I think that there was real change that came out of what happened with George Floyd. Uh, but it just... It seemed at the time like that wave was going to go a lot further inland than it has, and here we are talking again. Am I naive in that, or did you all feel the same way? Did anybody here 
think that that was going to march further. Yeah, I, I think that we all felt for a brief moment that there would be more tangible results to come out of, of um, the unfortunate killing of George Floyd. Um, I think that what the Milwaukee Bucks said in their statement of, um, of yesterday in, in calling on the legislators to have a special session, to call them back to office, to do something, um, that is the type of change that should be invoked. Is policymakers coming, sitting around a table and actually enacting in, in policy that will address the systemic issue that we have. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, that's what was absent with George Floyd is that we had the emotional response. We had people saying, let's do things differently. Let's have a conversation. Let's change the narrative. Let's be aware of uh, the situation. But there were no policymakers that sat around the table, even in my city, right? Um, when they started the conversation to say, we're going to do these things, those things fall flat um, when you look at what's happening just in our country. Akila, David, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, as far as just after George Floyd, did you didn't you feel that momentum moving forward, or 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 no? I I did feel it moving forward. Um, it felt good, like we were finally going to rally together. You know, even people in my social media group would reach out to me and how can we do better? What can we do better? It felt good for a moment, um, but just as Carl said, now. It has to be some policy changes with that. We got we got far, but we didn't get as far as we could have gone. Now, what um, the Milwaukee team has done in calling for you know the legislators to come back—that needs to happen all everywhere. I mean, and that's how you make change. But getting back to your question in regard to the boycott from the basketball players, I agree with Demond. Yes, it, it's a diversity lesson. Yeah. Mm. However if they were to continue and continue to hit people in the pocketbooks and not play, then you could probably get even more momentum. But the question remains, will they continue to do that? You see that the NFL has not, you know, how many more teams do we need to stand together and take a stand and do that to where it starts to impact the dollars that will possibly bring people back to have a legislative session to talk about how do we move forward? Yeah, and, and maybe real policies and, on the book. And maybe might it have to be more than just sports teams that are saying we're not going to participate, we're Agreed. not going to continue for that to become sort of a wider push that would actually move legislatures across the country to convene and 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 talk about these issues seriously. Uh, David, I'm sorry, I, it looked like you were about to say something, and I jumped in there. No, you're you're good. Um, <clears throat> I think for me, it, it felt really good to kind of be consoled. Um, in that moment, uh, because we were really coming off of a back-to-back, -back, if you consider the Ahmaud Arbery information mm -hmm. prior to George Floyd. And so I was I was very welcoming um, of that type of support. But um, I, I went back and actually listened to our previous podcast, and, and, and I think um, I pretty much summed it up there. I, it feels good, but, but I'm waiting to see the follow-up um, or the next steps. And so I, you know, I try to temper my, my excitement and, and temper my, um, you know, appreciation just because we've been in these cycles before. And so just seeing some of the things that have, that have taken place since this incident and, and some of the back and forth uh, between what basically equates to, to, you know, political lines, because you've got a lot of 
of Republicans saying that that leftists excuse, you know, criminals. And then you've got a lot of Democrats that are saying that, you know, Republicans are, are insensitive for whatever reasons or they're racist. Um, we have really politically charged uh, a, a human issue. And so I, I think until we can get past the point where we make everything uh, or we politicize everything, I think we'll be kind of in this just back and forth. And while it may feel good for a moment to have, you know, the NBA boycotting or while it may feel good to have a lot of panel discussions about how to be anti-racist until we have um, addressed the elephant in the room, which is uh, the political landscape, the political atmosphere for a human issue, I think we're going to continue to have the same issue. David, I think uh, when we talked last time, uh, you had discussed how watching the protests following uh, George Floyd, I mean, we, we, we saw those protests get really intense in some places. Uh, mm-hmm. And I remember you saying that you watched these people on TV and they were like your spirit animals. Um, uh, tell me when you see the, the, the protests now that are happening in Kenosha, Wisconsin, do you still have that feeling? Do you think that the protests... Um, are helping to push this forward? Do you think that the protests are keeping the issue alive so that it has to be discussed? Uh, because there are those who, who say that the protests are, are taking away from, especially when we start to see uh, protests turn violent, uh, and, and, and they say that it may take away from the issue itself. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? And so I... I still feel that these people are my spirit animals. Um, I've tried to create some platforms for myself to be able to engage in some demonstrations. Um, Of course, more peaceful, just based on who I am. Um, The issue is kind of rallying the people that you need the most support from, which in this instance would be law enforcement. Um, You know, everybody talks a good game until it's time to kind of put up or shut up. Uh, and so I, I think that's been for me the most eye-opening is to see how hesitant, hesitant and how resistant uh, law enforcement is to joining forces with somebody who presents himself as professional or presents himself as someone who wants to be solution-oriented. I think there's just such a huge divide right now that it, it makes it makes for a distrustful environment and it makes it where, you know, people don't want to be collaborative. Uh, as far as the protests, um, keeping momentum for us. I would say they they are keeping momentum from an acknowledgement standpoint, Um, but I don't know that they're doing much beyond that. And I think a lot of that is due to just the systems that are in place. We don't have the same, uh, for one, we don't have the staying power, uh, but for two, we don't have the same um, level of recourse that people had when they were acting on the Boston Tea Party and things like that because we don't have any of the power. And so even something as egregious as that, that was really riotous in nature, um, is now looked back in history as one of, you know, one of the greatest, uh, most memorable protests uh, this country's ever seen. And so when we act that way now, we're looked at as violent, we're looked at as um, destructive, we're looked at as detracting from, from, the, from what the, the real issue is. Uh, but my issue is, if if you're telling me how to protest, then I'm not protesting. So if you're telling me what I can do, what I can't do, what I uh, need to leave alone, what I can't destroy, I, obviously I don't want my things destroyed. But if somebody comes and burns down my truck or whatever, I mean, people are tired and people don't have another form of recourse. 
people don't have the resources uh, to be able to go out and hire, you know, good attorneys or, or hire tutors for this, for their kids or any of these types of things. And so when you are backed into a corner, the only thing you can do is come out fighting. And I think history shows us that, but I think the lens is just looked at so much differently now that we don't have the opportunity to truly express ourselves or get the resources that we need. You're right. It is viewed very differently. I saw a lot of nods across the panel here. Uh, Leave it to the educator to bring us the history lesson that, yes, we have had a a, a history in this country of change being brought about. And in many of those cases, dating all the way back to the very beginning of this country, uh, that change came about because of sometimes violent movements. You know, one interesting thing is that when we talk about some of the change that has happened since George Floyd's death. I think on the local level, especially in Dallas County, we're starting to see some, but I think it's incremental. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we saw the Dallas Police Department put out their first after action report um, after protests the first week um, from May 29th to June 1st, I believe. And it was controversial, but um, we saw some changes are being made in Dallas Police Department and in a push for what they call transparency, they made this report. Um, Dallas County-wise, we saw Judge Clay Jenkins um, assemble a task force to talk about some of these issues. And now coming up 1st of September, they'll be asking for $5 million to be diverted into community-based programs that could help with um, people who are who need rent assistance or who need second chance um, opportunities to stay out of jail. You know, there's a call to action for uh, monies to be not taken. Well, we heard defund the police. Judge Jenkins called this more investment opportunities, not taking money from the police, but more taking money to invest into community-based programs. So I think it's uh, semantics, but how you look at it. Um, So we're seeing some incremental changes. Um, But one other thing, you talked about uh, the resources, David, and the lens, Jason, Um, Part of that lens, we know that there have been consistent protests here in Dallas County, but one of the challenges is that we, the protests and the demands from the community members is on, is top of mind when media is there um, and able to follow it. You know, did you guys know that there have been protests outside the mayor's home that have gone uncovered over the past two weeks? Mm. um, Where community members have been demanding action and answers from the mayor here in Dallas. This is the fifth largest city in the country. And you have more than 100 protesters storming the mayor's street and his home, and that doesn't get attention. That's problematic. And it's on the newsroom's radar, but nobody's covering that. And these individuals, these protesters on the street are asking the same things that we've been hearing ever since George Floyd's death transparency, accountability, systematic changes, and a commitment from local elected officials to have conversations with the community members. And when that goes uncovered, I think, Jason, that's part of the problem. Why is it going uncovered, do you think? Is it just because there's, uh, quote unquote, too many other things going on right now during a pandemic and uh, economic uh, troubles and that sort of thing? Why, Why do you think it is that that's not covered? And Jason, this is where I'll be provocative as a journalist. Um, We can't make the excuse that there's too many things going on. Um, We have access to the media through individuals who are out there. They're posting things on social media. We have access to that. We know what's happening through tips. We just have to be committed to mobilizing and taking the 
an effort to cover those community issues. We can say, well, uh, coronavirus is going to lead our newscast. Um, schools are starting. Yes, all of that is important. But I also think these human interest and neighborhood concerns are also important, especially when you have that volume of people making a political stance or making a human interest stance, storming the mayor's house of a major city, and it goes uncovered. You know, I'm not, I don't make the decisions in the newsroom, I cover the people's stories. So that question you ask is also one that I would ask, being provocative. You know, I can tell you, I brought it to our staff's attention twice in the last week. We didn't mm -hmm. cover it. So I don't have an excuse. I just know that uh, we knew about it. But seeing that stories like this are not being covered is part of the challenge because the greater community doesn't understand that these are issues that continue to be um, talked about, yet are they being ignored? And is there a purpose that they're being ignored? That's all part of the question. I think that uh, we have a responsibility as journalists and media to let folks know what's on the pulse of um, a community's, uh, on the pulse of a community. But, um, you know, I can't make excuses for why in our editorial decision we didn't cover it. It's just that I think that that's part of the frustration and concern broad-based out in the community when issues are happening and yet the greater community doesn't know about it. That's a valid point, too, because I think a lot of people are living in their own bubbles right now because they're not yeah. perhaps heading to work. Maybe their kids are at home in school. And so they're in their home. They're in their neighborhood. They're in their small area there. And if they're not seeing protests where they are uh, and maybe they're not you know, watching as much news these days, then maybe they think, well, Good. All that was solved uh, after George Floyd. We made a lot of progress. Uh, everything has gotten better and everybody's happy now. Where, as you say, Demond, the fire is still burning in places. It's just that no one is seeing it. And yeah. if you're not living it every day, if you're not, you know, yeah. scared every time you're pulled over, if you're not living that existence, then maybe you tend to think, oh, good, that was solved. Especially, Jason, in a community like Dallas, where there's already been that long-term perception that certain people, if you live below a certain highway, your stories won't get covered unless it's bad news. You know what I mean? So that plays on. It's a reality, Demond. It's not a perception. It's a reality. It is. Uh, and, and, and thank goodness, though, Demond, I know that you have been committed to making those stories be covered uh, below certain freeways uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and making sure that those positive stories are told and when necessary, those negative stories, too. Uh, but yeah, I think that you're absolutely right there, Carl. This is it's not a perception. It is a reality that that just sort of gets put onto a back burner or people just look the other way from entire communities. Uh, I want to ask y'all what you think, you know, we saw Austin come out and really take some bold steps recently uh, to, you know, depending on how you, you want to phrase it, uh, you know, on one side, people say it's defunding the police. On the other side, the mayor says, no, it's not that. It is that we changed our priorities. We allocated money that was going to the police and quite a bit of it to different social programs to try to address some root causes of problems in our community. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on that because right away, the governor came out and snapped back and said, any city that does this, we're going to push for legislation. You know, we talked about convening legislatures. Uh, the governor is talking about bringing the legislature in uh, next year. 
and passing laws that says cities cannot do that or they will have to freeze their property tax revenue where it is so that they can't generate more revenue, that they can't take in new revenue. So the battle lines are being drawn here. Yeah, you're right. And it's, it's unfortunate because to the governor, then I would ask, so you're saying that we should not invest in communities where we can address the problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have those two questions. Do we handle this? Or you're saying, no, leave it the way it is. Let police act the way they have been. And it's okay. Then everybody can get their property taxes. And you phrase the question to him like that. Are you saying that you don't want to invest in the community to make things better? So we don't have a Jacob Blake in the city of Dallas or in the state of Texas. Is that what you're truly saying? How can we get around that? And I think what Clay Jenkins has said is changing the word to invest in other programs rather than defund the police may help, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, words. I mean, it's the same thing, you know, but phrasing the question that way. So are you saying that we should not invest in the community to make things better? Is that, is that what you really want? You know, several things that we've talked about here, it seems like it doesn't it come down to semantics a lot of the time because there you go again with that is that if you just rephrase it, it sounds like a totally different thing. You know, immediately you see these hashtags pop up, defund the police, and now you've got a a, a line drawn where you're going to have that discussion turn into a heated debate, okay? Right. Whereas if you say, like you just said, invest in communities or reinvest in communities, it sounds so much more positive. Does that maybe bring on less of a fight uh, if it becomes a a more positive discussion like that? Uh, Carl and David, your thoughts on this, you know, that that Austin took these uh, drastic actions. They took the, the, the most sweeping action that we've seen in Texas. And then right away, the state says, no, we're not gonna do this. Yeah, I, I, um, I have to be careful um, in my response, obviously, um, mm-hmm. with this topic. And I, I want to say that I, I speak on my own um, when I when I make this comment. Um, and it's going to be simple. Um, the party that touts local control is now saying, no, the state has control or should have control on this local issue. That's 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 all I will I will I will I will say with this because I think that to your point, Jason. Yes, battle lines have been drawn, um, but the battle line has moved into local communities when you have a state agency saying, uh, you know, we disagree with what the local government is doing, and therefore we're going to uh, penalize them uh, with the lever that we have of control, which is uh, the revenue cap. So, so yeah, that's that's all I'll say there. I think you said it though, uh, David. Yeah, I think I think it kind of kind of boils down to to what we believe generationally. Um, so if we if we go back to here's another history lesson. Uh, if we go back to um, you know the end of slavery and the need to continue to have workers and uh, the implementation of black codes. Um, and this this thrusting into law enforcement and what they do and what they provide, I think there is still an element to that in our generational advancement. And so we just believe uh, that we need law enforcement to be able to carry out um, and do all these different things for our communities, particularly our communities of color, 
uh, when it is not necessarily a reality, especially because generationally, African-Americans and marginalized human beings and uh, communities of color do not uh, foster that same relationship with law enforcement. And so what we have here is just this dichotomy of, of what one person believes or what one faction believes versus what another faction believes. And they're butting heads so severely uh, that it makes it impossible for us to ever reach a resolution on what it really means to defund police, uh, what it means to invest in communities of color, because everyone has their own uh, perception of what our needs are, and nobody's really willing to listen to, uh, I guess in this instance, nobody's willing to listen to the most marginalized people who are saying, you know, we need more social workers, we need more counseling opportunities, uh, we need more opportunities to to rehabilitate people in ways that don't require uh, law enforcement, because quite frankly, people are afraid of law enforcement. And when you're afraid, you've got your fight, you've got your flight. Um, a lot of times it's it's ending poorly for us. And so we could truly change the trajectory of these, these communities of color if we just listen to the needs of those communities. And they'll say, well, what's gonna happen when um, the police are taken out of these situations? Well, they're already out of the situations. They come in on the back end after something has already been resolved. In, in, in the instance of uh, Jacob Blake, they came after a fight was already, it was already done. And so they're here now and they're wanting to know what's happening, what's taking place. Um, they're identifying people based on their own biases and ensuring that they look towards this law and order. Uh, or I would just, I mean, that's just a euphemism for black codes to me. So they're ensuring that this law and order takes place. But in the end, we've got somebody shot in the back seven, eight times. You know, I know that's disputed, but we, we've got an issue where he's, he's not paralyzed. And, and to me, that's just not okay. Uh, uh, before, oh, go, sorry, go ahead, Damon. Sorry, Jason. What I do think has been encouraging is knowing that some police departments and city managers, city leaderships are having those discussions and listening to community members, bringing in community members to be part of the discussion. I was on a, uh, sitting on a webinar this week where a couple of police chiefs, including Dallas County Sheriff's uh, Marion Brown, they were having a discussion about policing in and policing of black communities, which, which is totally different. And I thought that um, the moderators and the panelists talked about different um, different uh, departments that were having those discussions and making concerted efforts to uh, talk to their rank and file and staff about the difference of policing in and of black communities and making it a point to try to turn things around and bringing in community members as part of that uh, process. So that's encouraging to hear, especially mm -hmm. as we continue to hear these cases again. Um, one other thing too, that task force that we mentioned um, earlier that Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins assembled, you know, it's interesting because uh, in addition, to, well, making part of that task force um, was the effort to bring in city managers from, I think it's about six or seven municipalities um, locally, Mesquite, Dallas, uh, Lancaster, Duncanville, I believe DeSoto's there too, um, Grand Prairie may be part of it. And they're part of the conversation, listening to what the community is recommending in terms of um, some systemic change, uh, things like making sure police um, departments and the county sheriff's department take efforts to um, use 
or not use deadly force in certain cases, especially when it comes to mental health calls, unless there's a weapon involved, bringing in social workers to handle those kind of cases. If there's an officer who has multiple uh, reports or complaints of excessive force, they should be terminated or furloughed uh, pending an investigation. So those are some of the recommendations. And I think that you do have people listening. Um, that's encouraging that uh, leadership, elected leadership is bringing in the community members to talk about these issues and help draft some of the recommendations. So coming from George Floyd, that has been one of the most uh, encouraging things to see in here. Yeah, you you, you uh, almost took it right out of my mouth. I was going to go across the panel as we close out here and ask, uh, you know, what have you seen coming out of George Floyd? I mean, there are going to be new things now uh, that come out of Jacob Blake. Uh, there will be, you know, new changes that come about. Um, it, it, it seems like it's incremental like that when we all thought that after George Floyd, that was going to be sort of the tsunami. What have you seen come out of George Floyd that was positive? And, and what do you think still absolutely needs to be addressed that you thought might be addressed after George Floyd and it just wasn't? And if we could just go across the panel here to close out with that. Akila? Um, I would say what's positive in my world is more real conversations about what's going on. I think that after the last podcast, I had a couple of people that didn't know my story, had never heard it, never even knew that I experienced those things, have real conversation with me about it. So it was more than, you know, just a like on a page, but it was real conversation, um, mm -hmm. things that I haven't had to have any conversation about at all. And so um, that was one positive thing. Um, I would say what I would hope that would have changed is even in the workplace, you know, um, being a person of color, working in the workplace, there were some things that were just not discussed. It's like, oh, that that's not happening. That's no, that's not real. It's that's on news. That's not anything. And to me, that was what was unfortunate, especially when I saw other uh, organizations rallying around their employees and having real conversations about it in my workplace where it was it was just not it didn't wow. take that's yeah. stunning yeah we we definitely did that in our workplace even that's surprising that there are workplaces where it's like no we're not doing that and it, it's almost like that conversation has to make it all the way to the workplace because it has to reach into every segment of society for there to be true change that moves forward uh mm -hmm. carl what were your takeaways after george floyd what, what was the the huge positive that came out and what is still the big piece of unfinished business that you thought might have got gotten to after after that yeah um you know i i, I think the largest takeaway um was the conversation as akila mentioned the conversation that's uh, been had uh, i feel like a lot of people were awakened to the reality um of what uh, happens in some communities here uh, in the united states of america and so that was a, a great thing uh, a start of the conversation so to speak um what i feel uh, needs to happen now and and let's be frank it doesn't happen overnight it takes time but it's consistent effort put in uh, 
over that time to actually see change um, is we really have to look at the economics of America and one, how it's structured uh, and then the inadequacies that are now and where those gaps are. Um, you know, we have to look at our educational systems and communities of color. We have to look at job opportunities, job creation in communities of color. Uh, we have to look at uh, just the, once again, the economic viability and what our future generations will look like if nothing changes, because this um, this uh, policing in America, uh, our skin as a weapon, all of these things are byproduct uh, byproducts of the underlying root issue. And the root issues are the inequities among us are growing every day. Um, and so until we really close that wealth gap, until we close uh, the economic opportunities, and until we um, sure up the loopholes that have allowed us to fall victim to those things as people of color, uh, we're going to continue to have this same conversation. And so um, my hope is that that change not only happens from a systemic level of policymakers enacting action, but also from an economic level. Um, it's very, very, very important as we look, about, look at our next generations that are coming. David, what are your takeaways uh, in the wake of George Floyd? Well, we got some new verbiage. So we have mm-hmm. allies now, we have anti-racism now, a plethora of other things that have come out of it, you know, from, from a verbiage perspective. Um, what I'm looking for moving forward is the implementation. So what does an ally truly do? What does someone who's anti-racist really look like? Uh, how do we enact that in different professions and in, in different corporations? What does your diversity and equity team look like? Uh, are you calling out these things that uh, are race, acts of racism? Uh, as an anti-racist, are you looking uh, are you being intentional about the the way that you move and the way that you see things taking place? And what are we doing to make sure that we are truly protecting those uh, who experience marginalizing uh, circumstances? And so a lot of times we have, you know, people who see things taking place and, and going on. Um, you can look on social media. You can, I can guarantee you that those same conversations are happening in a workplace uh, where people are using language that's disparaging or, uh, making comments that do not align with being anti-racist. Uh, and what are we doing about that, you know, throughout that process? Are we just leaving it alone? Are we still taking that stance of neutrality, which to me would not be anti-racist? Uh, but what are we doing from an implementation standpoint that's going to bolster what happens in these communities and makes people feel more comfortable and, and provides people with more opportunities? And Jason, a couple quick uh, observations, too. It's been encouraging to see the promotion and support of Black-owned business um, after George Floyd, uh, restaurants, retail shops. I noticed that there's been a big push, and that's been encouraging. Also, um, one, another observation is that seeing more and more people not afraid to call out individuals for problematic behavior. We've been seeing a lot of that across social media through video, and um, also seeing that individuals in our community are willing and able to take the conversation outside the community and to the Capitol. People are marching in DC for the March on Washington 2020 to continue those conversations. So I'm optimistic that uh, some change will come out of that or at least the conversation will continue. 
Thank you all for uh, weighing in on all of this. You know, it seems like every time that we have one of these discussions with all of us, uh, it, it feels like we, we we barely are able to to really get down into it. It seems like there's so much to talk about here. And every time we pile on another one of these incidents, uh, it becomes that much more for us to talk about. So uh, this is just going to have to be an ongoing series. I'm going to sign y'all up right now. Uh, and hopefully, uh, and again, we scheduled this. We were planning to do this. Uh, even before what happened in Kenosha with uh, uh, Jacob Blake. Uh, So we're definitely going to have to loop back again because there's just, I think that this runs so deep in our society and there's still so much to be done. There's so much unfinished business. Uh, But thanks to everybody for uh, reconvening with us here. Akilah, Carl, David, Demond, really appreciate it. 